Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 105. This week's feature, if you like Blood Rage, try out these games. we like to thank our corporate overlords, Asmodee Games, for allowing us to produce this episode. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is us coming back to you at episode 105. We are talking about Blood Rage and all the outstanding themes and mechanics that come from this great game that you can play and a lot of other games. But before we go forward, we want to let you know that once again, Anthony, Daniel and Drew will not be joining us this week. We're really sad about this because we like having them on so much. And we've been talking about the last couple of weeks how Drew is out there with his big acting career and Daniel's moving to South Carolina. But now that it's you and I and our friends listening to the podcast... We should admit that it was Asmodee. They weren't happy with the number of Asmodee games that they were reviewing and said that if the rest of us don't keep up with the Asmodee family, that uh, we're not going to be podcasting anymore. So, yeah, that's why those two guys are not here. But we love Asmodee here. Yay! Yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) It's just a company trying to make money, guys. It's not a big deal. It's not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. All right, hold on a second. What city do you live in? Pittsburgh. And, and what state's that in? Pennsylvania. And what country? USA. All right. And, all right. And, and what continent is that in? North America. And have you not heard of Asmodee North America? They own North America, Anthony. Come on. Put it together, buddy. They oh own Oh, my you. God. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't know what we're talking about and all this craziness, it's about Asmodee is now in talks to acquire F2Z Entertainment. Now, you may remember how they acquired Days of Wonder and Fantasy Flight, and Catan, and 
Well, they're going after F2Z that also recently acquired Plat Hat Games. So our industry, which was a very diverse industry with kind of small companies jockeying for position, producing their own games, has at first slowly and now very quickly started to condense under the Asmodee banner. So Asmodee is out there collecting great companies. We are, of course, a little concerned about this because one of the great aspects of board gaming is the fact that it is small companies working directly with all of us who are game players. So there's a lot of contact, there's a lot of interaction, and it's kind of a big family. So there's some increased concern about this. Now, F2Z, which is putting themselves in a position to expand, so there might be greater distribution for their games and might actually help some of their components. And in general, Asmodee has been a uh, good company. Okay, nothing? Anthony? Hello? Think, I think my mute things were competing with each other. I must have hit it on the computer and the mic. I was double muted. <laughs> um, all right. What well, was that from Asmodee? Did Asmodee do that? <laughs> Did Asmodee double mute? Asmodee is muting us. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say something positive, so it definitely wasn't them. Maybe it was uh, Bonacore at Stronghold. <laughs> Bonacore. <laughs> um, I think what it is is what naturally happens in a growing industry. One large company, in this case a holding company, comes in. It's like, hey, money to be made, buys up everything that they think will make money, and proceeds. Happened in the video game industry. Almost the exact same thing. You know, you had all these tiny little studios, and now there's probably, you know, four or five major mega studios, and then the indie groups of people. I think that'll probably be roughly the same here. I think over the long term, we're probably going to end up with two or three really big board game companies, one of which will be Hasbro. They are starting to get more into the hobby type of games. And then we'll have the indies. We'll have always going to have people on Kickstarter. You're always going to have people who hold out and just don't sell because they do have that option. They don't have to sell their companies. And then on the flip side, we might actually get Z-Man games in print occasionally, sometimes, be able to buy them after they're released. You don't go six months with the biggest game of 2015 out of print, like Pandemic Legacy, because they can't figure out their production. Sure. So I, I, there's always good and bad to this. I don't think it's the end of the industry. It's certainly not the end of the industry. This kind of thing usually means it's growing. But I understand why people are concerned because you got like, man, these guys are just eating everybody up. Sure. Well, you have a lot of positive things to say. So clearly Asmodee has gotten to you and, uh, you're, you know, you're biased. Okay. I, I see that, Anthony. It's fine. <laughs> they got another <laughs> one of us. <laughs> Dude, keep it down. They can hear this. Cool mini or not, you're our only hope. <laughs> It's true. That could be the third. That could be the third pillar here. It could. Let's go with those guys. I like their miniatures. So we recommend for all listeners to line up all your cool mini or not miniatures, surround your game so that they're protected from Asmo Day. I think cool mini or not's outstanding work with their miniatures. They look pretty hardcore, fierce, especially Blood Rage. So I think that might protect us for a little bit longer. Hopefully. Yeah, and you certainly have enough of them. If you backed any of their Kickstarters, you got like two hundred <laughs> of them around your house somewhere. Sure, at least. And then you got your then you got your Arcadia Quest and your Rivet Wars. If you line them all up, I don't think Asmodee is going to mess with us. At least I at least I hope not. So, yep, some things are changing in the industry, and hopefully you're listening to this after Gen Con. So while we'll talk about Gen Con next week, we want to talk about something that happened during Gen Con and how you can participate and win big, Anthony. Yeah, so if you were at Gen Con, you got a program, and if you flip to the back of said program, 
you saw the annual Dice Tower ad, and we were on there, of course. And that means we are part of the Dice Tower's annual uh, post-Gen Con contest. We did this last year. It was fantastic. We got like so much feedback from you guys that we just kind of want to do the same thing this year. It's very easy to enter. And by entering, you enter into our particular contest for a $50 cool stuff gift certificate. And the winner of each of those, uh, the different podcasts in the network, will be entered into one larger pool. And Tom will pull that out. I think last year he did it live. So we'll see if he does it live again this year uh, sometime in September. And that will be for, I believe, $1,000. If it changes to 500 just hold me to that. Uh, last year there was some confusion. So I think it's 1000 bucks though, for cool stuff. And... That's for all the winners of the individual podcast. So for us, 50 bucks, all you have to do is go to boardgamersanonymous.com slash contest, and there will be instructions there on how to enter the contest. I will also put said instructions into the show notes, so you will see them on your listening device, or if you're on the website, they are also listed there. If you are listening to this on like Dice Tower's website or somewhere else that's not iTunes or our website or something like that, Go to one of those places if you don't see it. It's printed in like a dozen places, but it's not everywhere. But basically all you have to do is click the link, go to the survey, fill out the six questions I put there, and you will be entered into the contest. At the end of that survey, I'm going to include two other ways you can get additional entries. Super easy stuff. Just fill it out. Let us know what you think of the podcast, the stuff you want to hear about from us, the the games you like, the games you don't like, all that kind of stuff. Really helps us in terms of what we're going to talk about, what we don't talk about. Um, the direction we take the show, the types of material we produce, whether it's more audio, video, written content, etc. All that information you guys give us is awesome and it really helps. And, you know, you can help make the podcast better and also potentially win some uh, free games. So make sure you do that. It goes on for the entirety of the month of August. So it'll, you'll hear about it on this episode and then we will post it to our social media repeatedly. So we will, you will not get the weekly reminders you got last year to sign up and do this, but it is out there. You can do it at any time in the next few weeks. So this gift certificate that they can win for us and then the big gift certificate that they can win from winning our contest and then winning Dice Tower contest, is that only for Asmodee games? Um, I'm pretty sure. Pretty okay. sure. I think uh-huh. they sponsor everything now. Uh-huh, so uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, you'll have to take that up with Tom. They, got, not... to, they got to Tom. Okay, I hear it. Well, hear clearly. It. clearly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh- <laughs> just, well, just wink. Just wink if they've gotten to Tom. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Good, yeah, yeah. good. 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 Okay. Yeah. No, you can buy whatever you want, guys, as long as it's from Asmodee. Yeah. I mean, Asmodee owns everything. So basically buying anything is buying Asmodee. So yeah. It's true. It's not even an argument. It's, no. It's easy. All right. So with that said, on to the episode. Shout it from the tabletops. Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. All right, so for our Shatter from the Tabletop segment, we got some brand new news that you really should check out. Anthony, bring us up to date. All right, so this is not at all super new. If you're in the hobby at all, you probably already saw this. But Is, is it Asmodee News? Uh, is it? I don't know. Did They They probably publish this game. I'm sure they do. Okay, good. Uh, it's the Spiel des Jahres. <laughs> <laughs> is it the Asmodee Spiel des Jahres? Ooh, see, now that would be tricky. <laughs> Even then, I'm, I might have to come over to your side if that, if that happens. Um, so the Spiel des Jahres winners were um, announced probably two weeks ago now, as of you listening to this. So we had the Spiel des Jahres winner and then the Kennerspiel winner. Um, the Kinderspiel was announced a few weeks ago, and that was Stone Age Junior. 
um, which is pretty cool, a little game. But Spiel des Jahres, no big surprise here. Uh, they had the three nominees, all three of which were very good, uh, Karuba, Emotep, and Codenames. And I don't think anybody is too surprised to find out that the odds-on favorite, Codenames, picked that one up. I think the only reason people were going against that one, I think, is because last year Splendor lost to Colt Express, which was kind of an upset. Sure. Uh, but honestly, the, the momentum Codenames has right now, it's... You know, it was it was it was its award to lose. I think at that point. I mean, it's highly popular and it's easy to play, and it definitely hits a mass market. So I don't blame them for picking code names. I just think the other games, Emotep and Karuba, were much better games. And yeah, I agree. I liked all three. I've played all of them multiple times. I think I probably would have voted for um, personally either Karuba or Emotep. But code names is fine. I mean, it's a good game. It's just. It gets to that point of being like, is it really the best game? Game game? It's more of an activity. I mean, it is a game, but anyways, we can go down that road all day long. Yeah. <laughs> People will argue with us. Uh, so that was the Spiel des Jahres winner. No surprise. Um, so now it won the coveted Origins Award and the Spiel des Jahres as well. <laughs> so when it, did, when it won the Spiel des Jahres, did the same guy from Fantasy Flight come up and accept the award for them? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's his job now. <laughs> that's he his just job. flies around the country. <laughs> just accepting oh, awards for people. <laughs> yep. He's very good at it. Yes. Um, and he's also an Asmodee employee, so that makes that's sense. That's true. Ooh. <laughs> Illuminati. <laughs> uh, the, the bigger surprise, at least to some people, was the Kenner Spiel Award winner. The nominees this year were Time Stories, uh, Pandemic Legacy, so the two big storytelling kind of outside-the-box games. And then Isle of Sky, which if you hadn't played it, you might not have heard of. It was a good, quick little game from Mayfair that um, I've played several times and enjoyed. And and the winner of the award, the Kenner Spiel, was Isle of Sky. So I was not... I was surprised at first, and then I wasn't, just because of the types of games that typically win this award. But it was still like an upset over the two, you know, the behemoths in the hobby for the last year. Yeah, I was surprised that... Pandemic Legacy and Time Stories were even nominated because it doesn't seem like Spiel type of nominees. But I was glad to see them; they were there, and maybe they split the vote a little bit. And like you said, Spiel des Jahres games tend to be a little bit on the lighter side. So even for their heavy Euro type of game, it's usually a light or it's a gateway game. So not too surprising here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Broom Service won last year. Very good game, but kind of in that middle area. Yeah. Isle of Sky is also in that middle area. So no big, big surprises, but you know, I think a lot of people were banking on one of those two winning. I still think the they split the vote because they're kind of the same. They're not the same game, but they're kind of in that same genre of not typical board games, you know, mm-hmm. consumables. So we'll see. There'll be plenty more of them over the next few years in that category. Um, other thing too, we wanted to talk about, and this is kind of just in relation to, you know, Fantasy Flight does all their slew of n- announcements, you know, uh, in front of Gen Con. And as you're listening to this, they've probably made a few more announcements on Friday at the Flight Report, which we will report on in our next episode. But the one of the big stories and one of the most hotly anticipated games out of those pre-show announcements was Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. So this is a game that's kind of fallen off most people's shelves, doesn't get played a lot anymore. It's been iterated upon. There's better games out there. So they revamped it, and now it is uh, fully cooperative, and there's an app. So 
they're kind of continuing along that road of removing that one versus all component from you know some of their more popular legacy games and building an app to run that one so they all can all play together. You know, Descent, uh, Road to Legend app that came out earlier this year, and now the Mansions of Madness app. Um, so like I've been saying this for a while, I think they have a ton of these apps in development, whether for existing games or new ones. They just take a while to develop. So we're starting to see some of them. I think we will see many more in the months to come. And I think people are starting to come around to it a little bit just because it's becoming part of the hobby. Yeah, I wonder if One Night Werewolf was responsible for this because anyone who's ever played Werewolf before, you know that one of the players can't really actually play but kind of runs the game. So with One Night Ultimate Werewolf, you're actually playing an app that has Eric Sumner's voice running the game and it allows everyone to play who's there so we might see more of this and maybe one day way 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 in the future we might actually even see an ai that actually can think about and respond to what players are actually playing yeah i mean i think that's kind of the not next logical step but eventual removing the dm from a board game i think is an important step because those games are really fun except for that one guy who has to do that nobody enjoys doing that I certainly don't. And you feel kind of bad when you're playing it and having fun and the other guy's just reading cards to you. So it's nice that they're getting rid of that. They have a lot of older games that can benefit from this. So I think we'll see more of this in the next couple of years. And they can actually call it AI, which means Asmodee Intelligence. So it it works on many, many levels. (laughs) It keeps coming back. (laughs) We can't kill it. Save the future. Season two of Stranger (laughs) Things is just going to be Asmodee infiltrating our lives. (laughs) hasn't it already come on man hasn't it (laughs) oh man so yeah that's um the i guess news quote unquote for the the last couple weeks the big big news episode will be in two weeks when we talk about all the stuff that happened at gen con but for now you know awards are out apps are in board games we are at gen con hopefully you are or had a chance to read about it and uh on with the rest right on with the rest and now our acquisition disorders Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game, nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? Alright, so for Acquisition Disorders this week, we want to talk about the games that we really, really want to get to the table, and let you know why they're that great, and maybe why you should pick one up in the future. Alright, Anthony, why don't you start us off? Alright, so this first game... Probably one of us talked about this a while back when it was announced. But like many of their games, it kind of flew under the radar for a little bit because they're not great at announcing them. And that is Gale Force 9's Star Trek game, Star Trek Ascendancy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Asmodee does not own this game. We cannot talk about this game. This game um, cannot be named. Okay. <laughs> the the game that shall be not be named. There you go. Nice. By the company that shall not be named <laughs> in relation to a certain sci-fi fantasy now a pure sci-fi franchise in its 50th this is too hard man i'm sorry <laughs> all right all right sorry asmodee i'm just gonna name it <laughs> um this is the 4x game uh from gale force 9 of star trek and it is an interesting take on the 4x genre if only because it is a three-player game and you kind of need the three players now we are gonna get a chance to play this this is Anthony from the past talking. We are going to get a chance to play this at Gen Con, so we will talk about it more later when we talk about our Gen Con plays um, and how it actually runs and plays. 
Um, but for now, it is something I'm very interested in, and it's something I'm going to keep an eye on. It has 200 miniatures, 30 different star systems, all the different stuff that you know and love from Star Trek. And you've got a player as the Federation, a player as the Klingons, and a player as the Romulans. So no huge surprise there. The usual starting trio, the same that was in you know, any of the other kind of starter kits for Star Trek. It is a Civilization 4X style game. So you are exploring, you are trading, you are fighting, you are all these different things that kind of go into these massive open world exploration types of games. But because there are fewer players, it'll be a little more interesting to see kind of the shorter style game. It is, I believe, three to four hours. I will be able to update you on that once we've played it. And it, it looks very interesting. Now, the, the thing about it, the reason some people are a little hesitant here is because of that three-player limit and because you can't really play with less than three. Um, you kind of have to have three people. Three is a good number. It's easy to get a group of three together, but it's still, anytime you have a game this big and it's $100, it's very expensive, and it's that limited in terms of how you break it out, it can be a little frustrating. All that said, there are additional factions coming that I know that they've told us they will be demoing at Gen Con. So presumably it'll break out larger. Um, We'll see if it can actually take on more players or not or just give you some variability. But there is more coming for the game. So yeah, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. There are no real solid Star Trek 4X games out there. There's a lot of games that kind of go down that road and some that start to do it and others that don't do it quite fully. Star Trek, the the Mage Knight re-implementation, Frontiers, is an exploration type of game, but it's it's Mage Knight. It's its own little thing. So I'm interested to see how this plays. I'm cautiously optimistic it will be good. I don't know if it's something I'm going to pick up, but I'm very interested. And if it ends up being as good as you know, it looks like it could be, it might you know end up on my uh, to buy list next week. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. This was the Star Trek game that everyone's been promised, and the idea of having additional factions to kind of add on to the system is amazing. But as you said, the I think the $100 price tag for a three-player game is pretty steep. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how this plays out and seeing if this game catches on. There is a chance that this game just kind of misses the mark just because of the weird player count slash price point. Yeah, it'll be tough. I mean, it really needs to hit that mark like War of the Ring hit um, with Lord of the Rings, which is a very big, very expensive game with a very limited player count but it perfectly captures the Lord of the Rings. If it can do that, I'm okay with it. You know, it's fine if it costs that much, if it's a perfect kind of representation of the world. But if it hit, if it misses a little bit, I'm more prone to be tough on it. So we'll see. We'll talk about it next month. Gotcha. So the Asmodee approved game that I want to talk about is Game of Thrones, The Iron Throne. Now, there isn't a lot of information out about this Game of Thrones game from Fantasy Flight Games. And... While that tends to be a problem, it actually isn't in this case because what this game actually is is a re-implementation of Cosmic Encounter. Now, if you've never played Cosmic Encounter before, what you're basically going to do in that game is you're going to get a race of aliens and that alien has a special ability. You're going to get battle cards. You're going to get some special flare cards, some special ability cards, and... When the Destiny deck flips over your color, then what you're going to be able to do is choose which of the other players you want to attack. Now, when you attack them, what's going to happen is you're going to choose one of their planets that you want to be able to win and land your ships there. Whoever has control of five planets outside their own 
race wins the game. Now, in the actual battling, you could call for allies to help you with the attack, and you can call for allies for defenders, your player cards. There's a, a lot of backstabbing, even of your own allies, and kind of switching things up and attacking different powers and kind of shutting people down. So the game has a lot of that intrigue, backstabbing, you know, at the last second throwing a card down. So that whole mechanic works extremely well for Game of Thrones. Now, if you don't know Game of Thrones, you're basically living under a giant rock in Westeros. But nonetheless, Game of Thrones is very similar in the way in which you have all of these different families, these different houses that control particular areas. And what they're trying to do is win the Iron Throne, which is the seat of power in Westeros. So basically how the show plays out, and no spoilers here, is that each of the family members are trying to gain control of different areas and different seats of power. And there's a lot of backstabbing, there's a lot of trickery, there's a lot of calling for allies, and there's a lot of last-second upsets. So this mechanic works out amazing for this IP, and I think it's going to be great. My only question about this game is that, is it going to be on the lighter side of Cosmic Encounter? Because they're including uh, photographic artwork in the game so typically that makes me think it's going to be lighter because it's going to be there for a mass audience which is not necessarily a bad thing or could it possibly be heavier more along the lines of a game of thrones the board game which actually takes several hours to play but either way i'm really looking forward to this game and whether or not you're a big fan of game of thrones or you're just a big fan of messing with other people and trying to build alliances to kind of win special areas. I think you'll love this game or maybe it'll actually bring you back to Cosmic Encounter. Yeah, when I saw this, I was, well, first I was like, hey, another licensed game. But then I was like, this is kind of a perfect fit. So I'll accept it. And that's what Fantasy Flight does. And that's fine. So yeah, Cosmic Encounter with Game of Thrones is kind of a perfect marriage. So I'm interested to see how it goes too. Yeah, it's it's... It's a very much like, of course, that should be kind of re-implemented from Cosmic Count. Makes so much sense. What's your next game, Anthony? All right. So I have uh, two more, one of which is just like a, oh, cool, maybe, I hope. Uh, and then the other one is one I'm actually interested in picking up here at, at Gen Con or taking a look at. Um, the first was just announced yesterday, I think, as of us recording this, and that is Star Wars Destiny. Um, so... You probably know more about it than I do right now because you're listening to this in the future and they've probably talked about it. But this is a new card and dice collectible game from Fantasy Flight. Yep, you heard that right. It is basically their version of Dice Masters with Star Wars. So tell me if this sounds familiar. You've got $15 starter packs with a deck of cards and some dice. You have relatively inexpensive booster packs and you have a collectible component. So... It's impossible not to draw the comparisons, but you can't really blame them for trying to kind of piggyback on this. Dice Masters is big. It's popular. It doesn't have the Star Wars license, and Fantasy Flight does, so why not? I have no idea if this is going to be good or not. I'm sure it'll be fine. The guy who's designing it and working on it is has worked on Netrunner for several years, so he knows how to do a growing game without horrible power creep. But anytime you bring a new collectible game to the market... And Fantasy Flight hasn't done a collectible game in a long, long time. We'll see how it goes. I'm excited a little bit because you have all three eras of the movies are represented here. The starter kits are all from the new movie, but 
the cards and dice, you know, you look at all the different pictures, also represent the prequels and the original trilogy. The actual gameplay looks interesting, though there's not really enough information right now to know exactly how it plays. Two players, 30 minutes, pretty much in that ballpark for most collectible games. The boosters are more expensive. They're $3 instead of $1, so they're going to have that going against them, you know, the cost of that Star Wars license. Um, So, yeah, I guess we'll see. This is cautious cautious optimism on my part. Uh, It's Star Wars, and I like Star Wars, and I like dice, but I don't know if I need another collectible dice game in my collection, so we'll see. Well, it's Fantasy Flight, which means it's Asmodee, which means you will buy this, Anthony. Oh, I will buy it. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the part I'm arguing. This is going to end up on my shelf. Will I like it? Then will I keep playing it? Those are the things I'm not sure about. So we'll see. Okay. Uh, we'll see how complicated it is. If my son likes it, then it's all bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked about this. The dice are odd. They have, they have the pictures of the characters on the dice. And I don't know how I feel about that yet. Yeah, it's funny, and they look like stickers. Apparently, they they're not. They're heat pressed on there, so that's okay. good. The stickers aren't going to come off, but they look like stickers, which makes the dice look kind of funny. Wow, I mean, I get this. This is you know direct competitor to Dice Masters, and it makes sense, and it might work out great. It just it's got that oddity of that look. So I'm hoping this plays amazing because it would, this would really be nice to pick up. But who knows, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a toss-up. I, I have no idea. I mean, they haven't really made a, a lot of bad Star Wars anything. Like, all sure. their Star Wars stuff is pretty good. Disney has to sign off on the IP and the game and make sure it's decent. But we'll see. Um, I don't know. Do you think that this will be the start just like with Dice Masters? Maybe we'll see a Disney version of this where you can kind of mix them together, kind of like Kingdom Hearts? I don't know. I mean, I guess it would depend on which um, licenses fantasy flight has and can mix in here sure i don't know how many other disney licenses they have if any that you could also just do star wars forever i mean there was a star wars collectible card game there's been two star wars collectible card games and they had many many sets so you can really dig in and kind of pull the lore apart plus all the new movies coming out you know it could be endless at the same time i mean we'll see i'm I'm, again cautious optimism here Mm because i want it to be good I loved the Star Wars collectible card game back in the day, even though it was horrible. Uh, <laughs> there's just something about opening packs to pull out your favorite characters and all that. It's so true. We'll see. All right. So one of the games that I want to talk about that's going to be at Gen Con is kind of an old game, but it's a game that's been missing from shelves for a very long time, and that's Medici. Now, this is a kind of really well-known auction game. It's a Reiner Knizia game, so... It's a little bit low on the down on the production and a little bit low down on the IP. So what you're really looking at is your basic trading in the Mediterranean type of look to it. And basically, you are trying to do a set collection mechanic where you're trying to get a large number of very similar type of goods so that you can move up a track. And the higher you move up the track, the more you score each round. But being an auction game, you got to be careful because the victory condition is based upon how much money you have. So as you're bidding, you might get a, you know, a large number of a really powerful set, but that cost you so much money that it wasn't worth doing. So there's careful management of the game. It's a very simple, a very quick game. This was recently a Kickstarter. Anthony picked this up, right? Yeah, yeah, I backed this. Um, it is in the mail right now. Okay. So I should have it before Gen Con, hopefully. <laughs> Well, I 
I didn't pick it up on Kickstarter because I know Anthony had it. We could play together and then realize he, we're not living in the same area. So now I have to pick this game up. <laughs> so that's a little bit of a downside there. But, you know, along with my, you know, anticipation for Medici, which I really, really like, and we've reviewed this previously, is their new release of Medici, the card game. So in the card game version, which is supposed to be a, you know, kind of set collection here, we're no longer looking at an auction game. What we're looking at actually is almost a press your luck type of game. So on your turn, you're still trying to collect sets of goods to score points. So you're all drawing cards from a common deck and you could draw between one and three cards. The last card that you draw is a card that you have to keep. The other cards you can add to kind of a main market where people can pick those cards up. So this game is a lot more about trying to deny other people while at the same time not water down your set so much that you're not scoring points. So while this is Medici the card game, this really isn't Medici. And I'm really interested in seeing if this game kind of has its own thing or in fact what we're looking at is just taking the Medici IP and stickering on another game that actually will work against it and not for it. We've seen this with Subdivision kind of taking the look and at least taking the look of Suburbia and kind of twisting it in such a way that it actually worked against Suburbia or even My Village not being like Village. So we might run into a similar situation here, but I'm really looking forward to playing this game at Gen Con and fingers crossed, maybe it'll be great. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. And it has the artwork from Vincent Dutra, which is pretty cool. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons I backed the new version. Yeah, is because I'm like, it finally looks good. People will play it when I put it down. Because the old version was super ugly, guys. Yeah, super ugly. So I just have one more, real quick, that I kind of popped up on my radar yesterday while I was researching Gen Con. Super quick. I don't know enough about it to to really give a quick rundown, but it is called Captain Sonar. It is a a new one from Madagot, which means it is Asmodee related. Um, so I'm covering my bases here. All hail Asmodee. All hail Asmodee. Um, it is, you are in a submarine and you are controlling it in real time with other players on your team. Radio operator, engineer, chief mate, captain, all of that. So it is a real time game, which I'm not usually a fan of. The reason I'm interested in this, though, is that it comes with a turn by turn mode. So you can play all your moves simultaneously, which amps up the stress level, and you have all the, the parts of it. You know, you have to form different partnerships and work together to make sure the attacks go through simultaneously. Or you can do it turn by turn, and you know, lower that stress level and kind of work through the strategy of it. If it works in both formats, I think this will be pretty awesome. If one format is significantly better than the other and it's just tacked on to make people happy, then I take all that back. But I want to play it. I want to see how it plays at Gen Con. I'm definitely going to swing by and check it out. Because if it pulls both of those off, it's something that I might pick up. Because I like the idea of real-time games, but I don't own any just because they're hard to get out. So that's the last one. Um, there are plenty more and we'll talk about on next month's episode. But that is one that just popped up and I'm very interested in. All right. So that's our acquisition disorders for this week heading into Gen Con. Or when you're listening to this, heading out of Gen Con. So <laughs> when we get back, we'll let you know how great those games are. Now, At the Table with BGA. So for our At the Table this week, we want to talk about which games are hitting our table and hitting our table hard. 
and especially, we want to let you know about our rating system. So, if we say a game is a buy, that's an outstanding game. And not only should you play it, but you should definitely pick that game up. Now, if a game is just a play, don't fear. It's still a great game. So, if you see someone playing that at the table, jump in because you want a piece of that action. Now, if a game is a dodge, well, you know, sometimes games just don't reach the you know the table worthy status and you should kind of avoid that game and if finally if a game is a burn then you should really avoid that game at all costs it just may just it just may be a game experience and not a game so with that said anthony what games are hitting your table this week okay so the first one um this is a game that was sent to me by uh breaking games and it is the uh we saw this at Origins, actually. We didn't have a chance to play it, so they sent me a copy to take a look at. It is For the Birds by Stephen A. Walt. Um, hopefully I'm saying that right. And it is a very, very quick, relatively light game. Uh, my son played with me, so he's five. So anytime he can play a game with me without a ton of extra rule changes, you know, it's pretty light. The idea of the game is that you are one of these different flocks of birds. Um, there's four different types of birds in the game. can't remember them off the top of my head. We've got cardinals and blue jays and a couple of others. But you are one of these types of birds, and on your turn, you are trying to put your birds down on this grid. It's a tree, but it's really just a grid. It looks kind of spreadsheety. And the, the, the numbers on the grid uh, will cross over each other. So you'll have the first row is 1 through 9, and then 10 through 19, and then 20 through 29. And the reason that's important is that you have two dice on which you will roll, and then the numbers on each of those will correspond to coordinates on the map. So if you roll a 28, you can, you'd be able to place your bird on anything in the two, um, anything with a two or an eight on it, basically. So there'd be a row and a column in which you can place whatever you want. The goal of the game is to, with the six birds you have, get four birds into a flock somewhere on the board. So either four in a little clump or four in a row. Sounds super easy. You just have to roll the dice and then match them up somewhat to where they need to be on the board. But there are lots of ways you can mess with other players. So you can place on top of people and move them out of the way based on what they call pecking order. You can place crows or hawks on the board. Um, They are printed on the dice that will allow you to knock people out of those spaces. Um, hawks will push everybody away from kind of this quadrant that they land in. Crows will just knock people out of an individual space. Cards, everybody has seven action cards that will do different things. So whether it's to place an extra bird or knock somebody out or move something diagonally, whatever it ends up being. So the goal of the game is very simple. You know, if, if other people don't mess with you, the game would be over in five minutes. You know, you, you really only need to roll four or five times before you're going to be able to put them in roughly the right area. But... Because the space is pretty limited and because other people will mess with you and because there are crows and hawks coming in and landing wherever based on how you roll, you're going to have instances where you think you're going to win and then you don't. It still only takes 20 or 30 minutes. So I know it sounds kind of munchkin where you can get close to winning and people just start attacking you, which does happen. But at the same time, you're relying on the dice a little bit. So it doesn't go that long. And in general, all the mechanics are very easy to pick up. So it was easy to teach my son. I had to read the cards for him. But once he knew what they did, it was pretty straightforward. He, he's like, I want to play the, the card that does this. And I just you know found it and we played it. The The board is nothing much to look at. It, it is looks pretty much like a you have all these different circles with numbers on them. It can get a little messy when you're looking at it. The birds, however, look very cool. The artwork is very interesting. 
they they snap together from different cardboard pieces and then you can stand them up. If you don't have the right lighting, some of the birds can look similar. The orange and red, for example, and then the blue and the green kind of look very similar. And while they are shaped differently, I don't think they're shaped enough differently. Like if you have a colorblindness problem, you really got to look at them carefully. So there can be some confusion there just because they are all the same size. But they are marked differently, and they are different colors, so that they do cover their bases there. The game overall, though, very simple, very quick, easy to learn. Um, I believe this was a Kickstarter from 2015, so it shipped you know, somehow in the last three, four months. And I like it. I put it on the shelf. I think uh, it'll be one that my son likes to play. It's got enough combat. You do mess with people enough that there is some interaction there, but you're not... It, while you can be mean and you are knocking people out, the dice kind of dictate where you do that. So uh, it's not something that's you know makes him fuming mad like some of the other games that have this kind of component. It's not. It's definitely not heavy, and it's not something I would take to my game group. It is definitely you know lower on the scale to that. They call it an abstract gateway game. I think that's probably a good description of it. So it's it's good for spatial. It's good for num- for number skills. A group of adults, I think, would be a little bored with this. It's super quick. And, uh, you know, mechanics-wise, you do rely on the dice quite a bit. But as an entry-level kind of numbers-based abstract game for kids, I, I thought it was pretty decent. So it's one I'm happy to keep on the shelf. And I think my son will enjoy knocking his friends out of trees for a couple of years to come. So the game that I got to the table this week was Matt Gertz's Hamburgum. Now, this game is a light to medium weight Euro in which you're going to use a rondelle mechanic to move your piece around to be able to score you beer, sugar, and cloth. Once again, one of the weirdest combination of materials and goods that you could pick up in a Euro game. So as you move around and pick up these resources, then you're able to sell them in the port based upon how many ships that you have there. So then you go to the church, you make your donations, and based upon what churches you made donations to, you're able to spread out from that area, build buildings that will be able to score you additional goods, make more money, and as your donations to the church go on, you'll be picking up special scoring tokens that will be multipliers based upon things that you do. So having people out on the board scores you points, having ships in the port scores you points, having buildings built in certain areas scores you points, and then there's even a scoring token for having scoring tokens. So a light to medium weight Mac Gertz game that allows you to do a lot of fun little things, and as you build up to the end, you'll actually need to build the church steeple, and you'll need a bell for that. So Actually, in this game, it actually comes with little working bells, and that's the final building part for that church. Once all six churches are built in the game, the game comes to an end. You count up the victory points, money and resources that you collected throughout the game scores additional victory points, and that's it. So for a Matt Gertz game, I was a little surprised that this game wasn't heavier, but it was a nice entry-level game for people who haven't played in that Rondell mechanic previously. This game is a solid play for me, and if you're a Matt Gertz collector, I would say add this to your collection and buy it. That's interesting sounding. It sounds almost like America the Game. Yeah, Beer, sugar, much. and cloth. Yeah. <laughs> the trip to the mall. The last game I wanted to talk about is also kind of a heavier game. This is a game that we saw at Origins, and the only reason I remembered it, for some reason this passed me by. I, I Honestly, it seems like something we would have seen or talked about before, but... 
We didn't. And the reason I remember it from Origins is because they had this really cool broken token organizer. Or maybe it was from the other one of the other companies that does these. But it was a very cool organizer to put out all these worker pawns, of which there are like 100. And it's Arkwright. So Arkwright, designed by Stefan Riesthaus, is a couple years old, actually. But it just now got published in the United States by Capstone Games. It was originally a Spielworks game. So it, it's been out in Germany for a little bit. But it is incredibly complex to put it mildly the explanation of the game when i played this with somebody at my game group who did pick it up at origins took about 45 minutes and that was with three people playing and mostly paying attention the the weight on it if you go to board game geeks like a 4.5 so it's up there and the game itself has two different modes and i love when games do this successfully because it gives you some flexibility out of the box it has a two-hour version, um, It's and they call that the Spinning Jenny variant. And then they have the four-hour version, and they call that, I believe, the Water Jet or something. The Water Frame rules, um, which adds other mechanics somehow. The idea behind the game is that it is the late 18th century, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and we are running factories that... Uh, players are running different factories that they are upgrading through different technologies. So Arkwright is the name of an individual who did this back in the time and was kind of instrumental in developing all these machines that made the factory so much more efficient. I'm not going to describe the rules because, again, we don't have 45 minutes. But the basic idea of the game is you are increasing the value of the stock in your own company and growing the number of shares you have in that stock. So the value aspect of it is the part you're going to impact the most. That's going to change pretty frequently throughout the game in various different ways. The number of stock you own, that doesn't change too much. Although you can sell stock uh, throughout the game if you need money. The game's money is incredibly tight. Um, You can sell different things. At the beginning of the game, actually, the, the person who taught it told us to sell some of our stock so we had cash on hand to start the game because you need to buy factories, you need to buy workers, you need to pay your workers, all these different things. The number of workers that are hired by the table as a whole. So there's this worker market on the right side, which has like a hundred pawns on it. And this is where that, the broken, the organizer comes in handy um, because setting this up took ridiculous amount of time for some reason. But as people take those workers off the the market, it increases the cost of every worker you have. Um, So there's different bars. So the more people everybody hires, the more they all cost, which actually came into play at the end of the game because one of the players went and hired like 20 workers just to drive up the cost so that everybody else would have to pay more because he had more cash on hand. In the end, it backfired a little bit because um, he then couldn't afford to pay them all at the end of one of his turns. But it had a big impact. You can impact other people doing that. That has a big impact. You know, if you end up having to pay five money to all of your workers then it can be pretty pricey but you can also upgrade those workers to machines throughout the game Um, the machines only ever cost one which is immediately less than the wage of the cheapest workers which is two there are different markets uh so there's food and um, clothing and a couple of others um you know electronics not electronics but um you know more advanced things that you can build that have greater value uh, over the course of the game. You can change what you sell your items for, which will change where you are on this other track that (laughs) determines kind of your dominance in that market. You can have different dominance levels in different markets. 
uh, depending on, you know, if you have the factory for it, how many workers you have, how much you produce for it. When you produce, it doesn't mean you can necessarily sell it because you need to, there needs to be strong enough demand, which is determined by how many workers are in play, but also you need to be high enough up in that market so that people want to buy yours um, versus someone else's, which is impacted by how many you produce, how many workers there are, and what you set your prices at. So as you can tell by my slightly rambling description of this game, there's a lot going on, and it takes a little bit of time to wrap your head around, but surprisingly little in, in the grand scheme of things because everything works together so tightly. The ability to run those factories efficiently is so important, and knowing when to upgrade your workers, when to build out the factory and bring in new production lines so you can produce more materials, when to fire workers. You can fire workers, which is a very important part of this game. When to start buying stock is also very important because if you don't buy stock, you're going to end the game with the same amount as everybody else. I bought two or three stock over the course of the two-hour game, and that was enough to win it because you don't really need to buy that many if the value increases enough. So it's very, very interesting. There's so much going on here, and I really enjoyed the puzzle aspect of it, trying to figure out the best combination of things the right order in which to do them where to put my workers how many factories to operate all three of us had three factories in the end and i honestly feel like two would have been enough in the shorter game the shorter game itself um does feel like it ends a little bit too early uh, and not in a way like mechanically there's a problem just that you're kind of building to a point um you don't really buy that much stock you haven't really gotten that far along but you do have a chance to kind of build out and see the full scope of the game the uh, the second version, the longer version, the water frame rules is about double the length of the game. So you get a lot more time to build it out and to see what happens um, and build, you know, all these different options to improve your factory. They bring ships into play to actually ship goods overseas and all that. So this is a game that I was surprised by because when I saw it, it did look super spreadsheety um, at Origins and we didn't have a chance to demo it. Uh, but having played it now and seen what it can do, um, I'm very eager to play it again, uh, specifically with the longer rules. And it's it's one where I'll probably swing by um, the Capstone booth at Gen Con, either to you know check it out and hopefully get a chance to play it again, or just to you know see you know what they have available. Um, I know they have another game too; they're demoing there uh, as part of the show, so we'll probably check that out as well. So yeah, Arkwright, it is a strong play for me. Considering buying, I do want to play the longer version first to see how it changes it. But based on the the two-hour version alone, you know, I had a lot of fun. So it's a very strong, very complex strategy game. All right, so the game that I got to the table this week that is also a little odd is Ginkopolis. Now, typically, Anthony and I don't like to kind of read straight off <laughs> the prompter, as it would be as far as when, when we're talking about description, because we really like to give you a feel about how the game played for us. But for this game, I really got to read at least the first paragraph. It's 2212. Ginkgo Belova, the oldest and strongest tree in the world, has become the symbol of a new method for building cities in symbiosis with nature. Humans have exhausted the resources that the earth offered them, and humanity now must build cities that maintain a delicate balance between resources, production, and consumption. Habitat is scarce, however, and mankind must face the challenge of building ever upwards to develop a new type of city you will gather a team of experts around you and try to become the best urban planner for ginkopolis now with all of that heavy strange theming 
out there, the game itself is a complete abstract. Now, that's not to say that the game doesn't have good artwork or even an interesting theme. The idea of building a civilization around a plant resource, big departure from traditional games, especially Euro games. But where it comes in as far as being an abstract is what you're doing in this game is when you start the game, you're going to be playing based upon nine tiles in the center of the board that are surrounded by letters. You're going to get three cards to start with, and that's your starting resources. Now, all the resources in the game are hidden. Now, when you get your first hand cards, you're going to pick one card to play, and you're going to pass the rest over. Now, on that one card, you could do a number of things. You could pick up resources that you'll need in the game for placing markers that allow you to build tiles in the game. Now, building a tile is the really interesting part of this game because you could build up on a previous tile that was already placed, but there's going to be a penalty if it's not the same color or if the number's lower. It's going to cost you an additional resource. If, by chance, it is the same color and it is the higher number, then you are going to place the number of resources that refer to the to the height of the building. So if the building is three high, then you're going to place three resources on that spot. And also a special gray marker. Now these gray markers are really interesting because obviously what the play testers found is as you are playing the game, you're going to lose track of what's newly built and what's been built in previous turns. Because once you've built, you have to pull the cards out that refer to that area because otherwise you wouldn't be able to build additional buildings because if you want to expand the board and you do want to expand the board the lettered cards are going to allow you to do this so you really have to pull out those cards so you're building on top of buildings to build them higher you're building on the sides to build them wider and when you build them on the sides you'll be able to pick up the resources of the buildings that are surrounding it now, one of the interesting things about this game, and it is an older game in comparison to Deus, which is a you know more recent game, it has a very similar mechanic because when you play a card, it's going to add to a tableau, and then when you play another card that triggers a particular action, like being able to place a building on top of a building, you'll be able to activate all of those other cards that does that same action. So... So just by placing a tile, you'll be able to score victory points, you'll be able to get more resources, or even more cards. So this game being an abstract kind of downplays the interesting theme behind it, but it, it is interesting looking, and it does play pretty quickly. It's a fun game. I would highly recommend a play of this game, because it is very fiddly as far as picking out the particular cards, expanding the board... And just even starting the game and breaking the game down was just kind of boggled the mind for a very small game. So play this game first. If it really kind of triggers your acquisition disorder, then I recommend picking it up. I think it's a game that we haven't seen anywhere else. It's unique. It's fun. It plays well with Euro gamers. But at the same time, it is tremendously fiddly. And not even Meeple Realty can kind of work out the fiddles here. All right, so that's everything that's hitting our table this week. Now on to our feature review. (laughs) 
And now, BGA's feature review. So for our feature review, we got Blood Rage. You've heard us talk about this game. This is the outstanding cool mini or not game that's really kind of taking the board gaming by storm. Now, in Blood Rage, you're going to get a unique Viking clan faction. And by unique, I'm talking about the miniatures here. It's really dynamic. you got a lot of emotion going on here. And basically, you're battling out versus other clans as Ragnarok. The end of the world is coming down upon everybody. And what you want to do is you want to end up in Valhalla on Odin's side. You want to show how great you are as a warrior. So this is a Euro game in the fact of how the mechanics play out, but it's a battle game as in battling each other to the death. Now, usually in a battle game, you don't want to lose your warriors, but here you do because it's all about gaining glory. You're going to invade, you're going to pillage the lands for their rewards, you're going to crush your opponents in battles, if that's based upon the cards, nonetheless. You're going to try to fulfill quests that are going to score you victory points and move up your clan stats. And then as the game comes down to an end, you're going to see certain areas of the board closed off to you so that you're not going to be able to have the same access as you did in the beginning. And the gods' gifts are going to grant different special abilities to you as you play cards. So there is a drafting mechanic here that's going to offer you a number of different opportunities to mess with other players, gain troops, gain special monsters that are going to be able to attack other players and implement their own special abilities, but at the same time, managing the Euro mechanics of your board that are going to be able to gain you glory, gain you special abilities, and be able to help you conquer your enemies. That's if you don't kind of kind of go with the Loki strategy, which is kind of like lose your guys but gain glory at the same time. So this game has some amazing tactics, some strategic gameplay. It has drafting, and you are going to really out-love everything about this game. Now, we've talked about this game previously, and there is a full review. But we want to talk about all the fun of Blood Rage that you may have already had that can be found in other games. So with that said, we're going to talk about some of the great aspects of Blood Rage and the games that you can find them in. So, Anthony, start us off. All right, so number one in Blood Rage. You can't have a Blood Rage without a Viking. So this game is all about Vikings and Ragnarok and everything to do with Norse mythology, and it it really feels like you're there and part of that battle, and you want to get the glory, and you want to go to uh, to Ragnarok and be be available there to, to fight. So I was looking at different games that have kind of a similar Viking theme. What I thought was funny is that the majority of Viking games are not very uh, Blood rage Blood Rage came along at a good time to represent what Vikings were really about. So there's three other games that I like that I feel really represent that quite well in several different ways. One of them was recently reprinted by IDW Games, um, originally from 2004, by Steve and Phil Kendall, and that is Fire and Axe, a Viking saga. So this is a game that is actually currently available um, for a long time, it was not. Uh, originally called Viking Fury, in case that's something you also have on your shelf. The game, it has a map similar to Blood Rage, except in this case, it is an actual map of Europe. So it's a little more historically accurate than just kind of the the random uh, mythological chunks that you get in Blood Rage. And similar to Blood Rage, you do get options in terms of how you're going to proceed. You can uh, get your crew together and go out and trade and settle territories you can raid you can use diplomacy and trade to vic- to get victory you can just destroy everybody as you should be able to as a viking the game is all about 
movement and controlling areas. There is a dice mechanic as as well as several other kind of more randomization methods. But the real fun of this game is the nautical element, the the ability of a Viking to destroy but also have to build a civilization, which is kind of the theme that people love about this, is that, yes, they're warriors, they go out and they destroy things and they pillage, but at the same time, you still need to eventually plant crops, otherwise you're going to starve to death. So this is a fun one. It's probably one of the more thematic Viking type of games out there, and I think it does a really good job of that. So that is one to definitely check out if you love the Viking aspect of Blood Rage. The next one on the list is unfortunately still out of print because it is one of those aforementioned Z-Man games that they don't like to print very often. Come on, Asmodee, help me out here. It is Yggdrasil. Yggdrasil is a cooperative game in which you play one of the gods. So you're not a clan of Vikings this time. You don't have to plant anything. You can just destroy things. You are Odin, Thor, Tyr, Frey, uh, Heimdall, or Freya. And then you're going up against all the different monsters of Norse mythology. You got Fenrir, you got uh, Jormungand, you've got the fire giant, you've got Loki, you've got the cosmic dragon, all the different things that kind of make Norse mythology so interesting and big and, you know, larger than life and the parts that make Blood Rage so much fun. And you, you have to basically survive all these different things being thrown your way um, and you're not going to survive very often because it's a very hard cooperative game. Uh, I don't think I've ever won it. I haven't played it in a while because I don't own a copy and they're hard to find. But there are a lot of different things you can do on the board here. You're going to be drawing enemy cards that are going to correspond to one of those evil creatures. Uh, you're going to move the uh, counters forward that are going to have different effects on on the game board. And then lots of different actions that you can take similar to most cooperative games to kind of fight back the evil, but also move your way towards victory. If you can find a copy or have one, this is a great game. It kind of evokes that eternal struggle aspect of the Viking mythology, Norse mythology. Not necessarily kind of the the war Euros type of game that you have with uh, Blood Rage, but it, it definitely hits the theme pretty strongly. And then the last one, the third one I wanted to talk about is um, a relatively recent release. Actually came out pretty much the exact same time as Blood Rage. So I don't know if it got all the Viking cred that it should have, um, but it is a very good game as well. And that is Champions of Midgard. So Champions of Midgard is, think of Lords of Waterdeep with dice and Vikings. And you, that's kind of what you have here. You have a really big board, uh, very long, lots of different action spaces. It's worker placement. You are recruiting different types of warriors in the form of dice that you will then use to combat trolls and go on missions across the ocean to combat different enemies. The goal here is to collect resources, pick up cards um, that might give you bonuses towards the end of the game, have the food you need to feed your Vikings when you go on those long trips, and then ultimately to just defeat all these enemies that you face because that's where you get the majority of both the money you need and the victory points, which are glory, of course. Champions of Midgard is a fantastic worker placement game. I really like it a lot, actually. And it has a lot more theme than something like Lords of Waterdeep, because um, you really do feel like you're going out there and doing these things. I think the combat el- element of it really adds a lot to it. You are not fighting amongst yourselves with other players, although like any good worker placement game, you can block other people out and take actions that hurt them. So it, it does have that component to it. It's not quite as head-to-head as Blood Rage, but it does have that feel of kind of what it's like to be a Viking, to go out there and to combat monsters and to scrounge for food and to recruit new warriors and to lose all of your warriors as they die. 
um, horrible deaths. Champions of Midgar is probably one of my probably my second favorite Viking game uh, behind Blood Rage. So there you have it. Three games with Vikings that feel dripping in that Norse mythology, if that's what you really like about Blood Rage and the, the theme that's there behind that game. Um, try them out if you haven't. Um, if you have, play them again. They're great. So for moving from theme to actual mechanics, one of the mechanics I really do love about Blood Rage is its action point allowance. Now, in Blood Rage, you're going to get a little player mat that's going to keep track of how much rage you have. Now, rage allows you to do a number of different things in the game, and you'll also be able to generate more rage by moving up your markers on the bottom of the mat. So while the game starts with a couple few points of rage that allow you to move into attack, later on in the game, what you'll really be able to do and what you want to do is move up your rage meter so high that you can do so many things and kind of spread out and attack and cause kind of chaos. So it allows you a certain level of freedom so you can pick and choose what you want to do and instead of just everyone has one turn. On my turn, I have a lot of rage, so I could do five or six different things where you have less rage, so you're only doing two or three. So as the game goes on, your your kind of ability to do actions changes a lot. So that's a lot of fun, and I picked out three games that uses that action point allowance mechanic in a really great way. So the first game that you should definitely check out is a game that we talked about a lot and has won a lot of awards from Board Gamers Anonymous, and that's Defenders of the Realm. Now, in Defenders of the Realm, what you're doing is you're battling against darkness in this medieval fantasy theme. So you have your own player that has a certain number of life tokens that act as as action points in the game. So you may, just like Blood Rage, decide that you want to go off and attack some monstrous villain. Or maybe you want to go off and go questing or head to the inn and pick up some special gear. So these life tokens are really interesting because they count as your action ability, but as the name name suggests, also your life ability. So as you take damage, your action points and therefore your ability to do things drops. So unless you heal up, so as the game goes on, you will actually lose your abilities to do things. And then when it gets down to zero, you can actually lose your character. So that's an outstanding implementation of that game. I also want to talk about Amerigo. Now, this is one of our favorite Feld games, and it implements a cube tower in which you are going to be picking up a certain color of cube and dropping it into the tower. And then whatever falls out of that tower is going to be the available actions that you can take. Now, at the start of the game, all of the cubes are kind of thrown in there, And what the cube tower does is it catches certain cubes and releases other ones. So throughout the game, you may be throwing in a whole bunch of black cubes that allows you to load the cannons, but maybe not all the black cubes come through. If they do, or if a large number comes through, that probably is the action you want to take. And based upon the number of cubes is the number of that action you could take. So blue cubes move ships, black loads cannons, red allows you to plan to build buildings, and then green allows you to actually build those buildings, brown allows for scientific progress, yellow allows you to buy production tokens, and white allows for a special action on a separate board. So those cubes come through, you might have dumped a lot of black, but maybe this time only one or two of those black cubes came out, but a lot of green cubes came out 
So you gotta make a decision which action you wanna take based upon how many of those action cubes are actually available. It's a really fun mechanic and you can never totally be sure what's gonna come out that turn. Finally, I wanna talk about Stronghold. Now, Stronghold is a two-player game where one player is kind of the forces of evil with goblins and ogres attacking this castle. And the other player is the defender and is these humans that are trying to defend the castle while all the people have an opportunity to escape. So this game is going to end badly for the humans. Based upon these action tokens that you get throughout the game, you'll be able to invest these little tiny time tokens to be able to build up special abilities, recruit troops, and take down the enemies. Now, how do you get these little blue kind of chits? Well, as the bad guys are building up their forces, they're spending time. So whatever time they spent, you have the equal amount of time to build up your defense. It's so interesting, and I'm surprised no one's thought about this before, but it's a really fun way of implementing the action point allowance. So if your enemy has only done one or two things, you're only going to be able to do one or two things, but you can spend it any way you want to kind of invest up, and so does the enemy. So it's a fun game and a really good implementation of the action point mechanic for a two-player game. Anthony, what about you? This next category, I'm not sure exactly what people want to call it. I, I found people calling it Weiro Games. I'm just going to say Americlash. Wait a minute. Or Euroclash. Is that an Asmodee-approved term? I don't know. Maybe they made it up. and <laughs> okay. they're just trying... I don't know. But um, it's basically the combination of a Euro game with a bit more of a war game. So Ameritrash meets Euro meets war game. War game light, war game Euro, whatever you want to call it. Basically, it's, it's like Blood Rage. You have a game where you are managing space and managing actions and managing points and kind of building out your engine And at the same time, there's combat, which has a significant impact on the way the game plays forward. So there's there's actually a decent amount of games that are like this, but there's three in particular that I like that I wanted to talk about. The first of these is a bit of an older one, uh, and it's been recently been re-released in a new version due to licensing issues, and that's Empire's Age of Discovery or uh, Age of Empires 3, depending on which version you have. The newer version is much larger it's more deluxe it's a giant board it was kickstarter backed so i got the super deluxe version you can also just buy the normal version but it's still rather pricey the game itself is exactly as it sounds it's about the age of discovery it's about these different nations going off to the new world uh, north america and south america and laying claim to those areas Uh, so the game looks like a euro it generally plays a lot like one Uh, There is worker placement over the course of um, eight rounds. There are nine different places on the board you can place your workers. Uh, You can go for initiative. You can go to the colonist dock to send your colonists out. You can um, purchase trade goods. You can buy ships, um, capital buildings. You can commit to discovery. Um, You can recruit specialists for future things. Or you can commit to warfare, which kind of comes into play later. As you go to these different areas, you'll pick up different trade goods. You'll take control of those areas, which has impacts on scoring later on. A majority gets you more points, obviously. Overall, what you'll be doing is you'll be getting the capital buildings that give you effects over the course of the game, trade goods that will impact scoring and help you towards the end of the game. And very strategically and very uh, sparingly, you will commit to warfare and fight other players for control of certain areas. The, the key to the game is to not let one person spread out too much and get my majority or minority control of too many spaces. 
but at the same time, not commit to so much war that you your own guys die too quickly because it's kind of hard to get them over there. Discovery has a chance of failure, and it's tough to recommit later on. And then sending your colonists out there, you, you want to make sure that they're going to be okay when they get there. So there's a lot of different components here to keep track of. The real key is you're not fighting all the time, but when you do, it really matters. And sometimes it doesn't matter if you die, but it's important that you choose your battles at the right time. It's a very interesting game. It's a lot of fun. It reminds me a lot of Dominant Species, which I could also have picked for kind of this spot where area control is important, but so is like strategically deciding when to mess with your opponent. And it's it's one that every time I teach it to new people, they, they don't quite pick it up right away just because the, the, the combination of those two types of mechanics don't seem like they fit. They fit extremely well, but if you're used to playing one type of game, you don't expect that other aspect to be there. So a lot of fun, this one. Uh, and if, if you get a chance to play it, you definitely should. The uh, second one on the list here is one that we've talked about a lot. And it's actually not my favorite, favorite game that's like this. There's a couple of others that I like better. But in particular, I feel like it really captures similar aspects of Blood Rage. If you like Blood Rage, you probably like Kemet. Kemet is you are vying for control for different areas on this relatively boring looking map, which we've talked about at length in the past. But the rest of the game is beautiful. So it's just the map we have an issue with. The goal of the game is to have the a certain amount of uh, victory points at the end of any given round. And you can get victory points through various different ways. You can get it through combat. You can get it through capturing certain areas. You can get it through uh, building up your personal base where you have your little pyramid uh, die that you, you, know, you turn over and, and upgrade. There are different upgrades you can purchase uh, from the board that will kind of give you additional abilities or new monsters that you can put on the board on your side. The real key to this game is, again, there's so much going on where you're building an engine and you're trying to generate uh, victory points and do things in various ways. But at a certain point, combat becomes inevitable. It's not the core of the game. It's not a war game where fighting is really be-all and end-all of the game. But it is very important because at a certain point, you have to move into a new territory or, you know, sparing that, you have to stop somebody else from holding control of that territory. And so combat becomes very important. But because of the nature of the cards that you use to impact combat and because of how hard it is sometimes to get those recruits back and get those units back on the board, you don't want to just go out there and fight everybody all the time. So you have to pick your battles carefully, but at the same time, they are basically the core of the game because if you don't fight... Um, you're going to lose. So like Blood Rage, you look at it, you see the engines, you see the cards, you think, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. But if you sit back and don't fight, you're not going to do very well in the game. Whether it's winning battles or losing battles, you have to do something. The combat mechanics themselves are actually pretty similar to, um, in, you know, that you have the card that you'll add to the combat, which may, you know, improve your chances or decrease it or impact the other player in some way. A lot of similarities between the games in other ways but in this particular way, where you have a game that feels kind of Euro-y, but throws in all these more aggressive mechanics that force you to kind of go out there and attack each other, and if you don't do it, you won't play very well. Like, you have to fight. Um, it's a lot like Blood Rage in that way. And the last one I threw on here um, is an interesting one, but it kind of fits the same bill, if you like historical games anyways, is 1775 Rebellion. Um, so I played this for the first time at Origins, and it, it is exactly what it sounds. You have the British on one side, the colonists on the other, and then you also have two other factions um, that kind of go along with them. So you could play up to four players with the four factions, 
or you can play two players where each person is playing two factions. The um the goal of the game is pure area control. You are trying to get control of the most areas on the board, and then uh, either at the end of all those rounds or when all the peace treaties have been resolved, um, or two from one side have been resolved, then whoever has you know majority control uh, over the map wins. Now, that sounds pretty basic, but there are a lot of different things you can do. You have different cards you can play that will impact different you know f- places where your guys are going. Um, a lot of the time, you won't necessarily be engaging in combat. You'll just be moving and maneuvering and trying to recruit other people into your side. But you can't just go out there and try to take control of different spaces. At a certain point, you have to commit to combat. You have to stop your opponent from moving into a space. You have to take that extra step and do what you can to you know stop them from moving forward. And yet, at the same time, you don't know for sure whether you can win every combat because there are dice involved. There number of dice you have is also limited so even if you have like 30 troops in an area you're still going to roll the same number of dice it is possible to lose a lot of troops before you win that battle it is also possible to even lose that battle as we learned a couple of times you can have majority and still lose so while it is very much like a euro and that you're controlling the spaces that you move into you have a lot of control over the engine you build and the cards you play and when you play them and how you play them in the end it also has a bit of that ameritrash element where you're like all right, let's chuck some dice and see what happens. I have the odds on my side, but you never know what's going to happen. Um, and that's always fun. And that's a lot similar to you know what you get in Blood Rage in that you can commit to a battle, you can think you have majority, but you just don't know if the opponent has that one card that can mess you up or if they're going for that Loki strategy where they want to get messed up. There, there's a lot of different things to consider here. So that one's a new favorite of mine. All of these, though, kind of have that same element where you have to fight, but... The way you commit to combat is very unique and kind of makes the the Euro aspect of the game um, a much different type of game. So that is war-style Euro games. Let's call it that for now. Another great mechanic for Blood Rage would be area influence. Now, in area influence, what you're really trying to do is place your dudes out there on the map in order to gain supremacy so that you'll be able to score points. So this is where the battling of Blood Rage really comes into effect. And since the board is small and only gets smaller throughout the game, this happens more and more often. So area control or area influence is a big part of Blood Rage. And here are three games that also use that in a great way. So first off, El Grande. Now, El Grande was recently reprinted in a big box edition. So if you don't have El Grande yet, you should really pick it up. It's an outstanding game. Now, in this Euro area influence game, what you're doing is placing out your caballeros in special places on in Spain in order to gain control and score victory points when those areas are scored. There's also Castillo that allows you to put your little meeples in there, and then at the end of the round, you'll you'll pick a spot on this little wheel that'll allow you to kind of secretly and at the last second jumping with your meeples in order to gain control. So the game employs a lot of Euro mechanics, but once again, just like Blood Rage, it mixes both the Euro and the Ameritrash dudes on a map war mechanic that Anthony was talking about in order to control areas, score victory points on those special areas. And now you remember on Blood Rage, it's all about special areas and having the cards that score. Same thing here. There'll be special cards that will score particular areas. So it's not just about ruling the world like Risk. It's about controlling 
and having the majority of control in certain areas. So when those scoring cards come up in the right time, in the right place, you're ready to go. So El Grande, big box edition that just recently came out, is a great use of that. The next game is Dominant Species. Now, this is another fantastic Euro slash War slash Ameritrash game in which you get a specialized species that's going to give you a special ability. And what you're trying to do is spread out in this evolving land that's based upon what resources are available for your species. So there's a lot to talk about in this game, and it probably would take as long as the game of Dominant Species takes, which probably is about four to six hours. So you have your species, and based upon where there are resources, you spread out control areas, and based upon trying to survive, because there is going to be some catastrophes that happen throughout this game, you want to be spread out and in particular areas that, that score you the maximum number of victory points in the game. So once again, just like Blood Rage, right area, right time, right number of control, and you're doing great. Finally, I want to talk about Mare Nostrum Empires, and we talked about this on our last episode. Mare Nostrum is really innovative in the way that, once again, it implements that mechanic in which you are playing a Euro game, but still at the same time trying to force area influence in certain regions in order to gain resources, to gain money, and finally to gain victory if you control enough areas. Now, once again, it's not just a pure area influence, area control game, but you're also able to control areas that will allow you to get resources and money and not necessarily control the land itself. So based upon the victory condition that you're going for, whether it's pyramids or you're going for heroes and wonders, you really want to pay attention to what areas are the most valuable, gain the resources that you need to, gain tactical strongholds so that you could hold those resources. And just like Blood Rage, depending on the final victory conditions, whether it's your cards or the end of the game conditions, you really want to pick the area that really works at the particular time. So that is three outstanding games that really implement Blood Rage's area influence to the best of its ability. So that is our, if you like Blood Rage, try out these games. So whether it's Vikings or War Euro games or Action Point Allowance Systems or Area Influence, your Blood Rage experience moves on in these outstanding games. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek, our Facebook and Twitter account. And don't forget, we recently expanded into our YouTube channel, so you can find all the great episodes of Board Gamers Anonymous on YouTube. So get over there and check it out. And also, please rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you can, drop a dollar or two. We would appreciate you checking out our Patreon account. The more you support us, the more we get to support our great industry. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at our Asmo Day approved tabletop. Cool me or not, you're our only hope. <laughs>
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.